0: Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. I think when we we're sitting here today, I think it's no secret to any of us here that, that life is cursed, that things are just at the very least a bit off, and on some days, way off. We know that this world is not what God intended for it to be, right? We feel this every day, we experience it every day, like we were made for something else. Uh, for example, my OCD self thinks that I am made for a clean luxury SUV, but instead I drive a 2009 minivan with chicken nuggets and french fries underneath the child safety seats. Uh, the struggle is real. Uh, All joking aside, uh, there is real pain in this world. There is real suffering. There is real hurt, sometimes at the hands of people who are supposed to protect us. When we go through such problems, the tendency is to want to escape from this world, this real physical world, to a place completely detached from this one, a purely spiritual realm. We sometimes call this place heaven. Now, this desire to be delivered from the sin, the curse, and all its effects is good and biblical. We all feel these things. We all experience the difficulty of life in this age because we are living in exile. We are all outsiders of the place where God meant for us to live. We are all outside of Eden. Ever since humanity was exiled from the garden, we have all felt pain, sorrow, death. All these things are unavoidable. Whatever we've gone through, God does not intend to leave us in such hurt or pain. No matter how minor, no matter how great. One day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, do away with death, crying, and sorrow. He will make all things new. That is, he'll take this world, he'll renew it. He'll recreate it, making it fit for God's people. That's you and me and every other follower of Christ throughout the world. Although we may want to escape and go to heaven, what God has actually prepared for us is far better than anything we can possibly imagine. He will one day deliver us into a new creation. That day, we will no longer be exiles. We'll be home with God. That's the very good future that John speaks about in this passage today. So if you would, please look with me at Revelation 21, one through eight. Revelation. 21 1 through 8 and as we look for that passage uh, we think about the context of Revelation 21 within the context of the canon, the very last book in the Bible uh, and so what is John trying to do here what John is doing is he is drawing together on previous strings previous themes all to show us that the one seated on the throne is David's very son the promised Messiah who will one day make all things Knew. So read with me in Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Nor shall there be mourning, nor, pa- nor crying, nor pain any anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true, And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who overcomes will have this inheritance. And I'll be his God and he'll be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Now John begins this text, this passage, by saying, I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven, the first earth, had passed away. So Revelation 21 follows in the heels of Revelation 20, which affirms that God will do away with sin, with death, and the ancient serpent, the devil. In other words, he will do away with the old order of things, what we presently experience now, that which brings so much pain and so much sorrow. And what John now describes in Revelation 21 is a transition from the old cursed world to a new one, a renewed one, one with continuity with the present, only made new, renewed completely, making it fit for God's people. So John's not making this stuff up, he's not drawing it out of thin air. What he's doing is, he's drawing on Isaiah 65 and 66, which looks forward to a new heavens and new earth for God's people, a better place for the people of God, a renewed creation, a renewed world. But this was not just the expectation of Isaiah. Really, when you look throughout the scriptures, it's the expectation of the biblical authors themselves. After the exile from Canaan, God's people looked forward to a re-entry into a physical place, a land, Then authors like Isaiah and the psalmist show that they will certainly re-enter the land, but it will not be one sliver of territory, Canaan, it will be the entire renewed cosmos, the renewed world. Then you get to prophets like Ezekiel, which help really shape and kind of finalize for us when God's people will receive such a place. And Ezekiel, for example, in uh, chapters 35 and 36, shows that this will take place When God's people are resurrected from the grave, at that time, a Davidic prince or a Davidic king will rule over them. This is the very same place that 2 Peter 3 talks about when it mentions a new heavens and new earth. What John describes then is in keeping with the biblical expectation of a renewed cosmos where God's people will live in a place that will no longer be cursed, what we now live in. So Brian Blunt, citing Catherine and Justo Gonzalez, points out that God values, in this text, it shows that God values the physical earth in a way that must not be dismissed. Blunt goes on to argue, and I quote him here, too eagerly, contemporary Christians profess, proclaim, anticipate a heavenly salvation so spiritual that its ethereal existence completely separates resurrected believers from the earth and the evil physicality allegedly signifies. John's vision, by contrast, redeems the earth as part of God's good creation and as the locus of God's grand recreation. And if you look at the story of the Bible, they're right. All right. Heaven really is not the end goal for God's people. All right. Ever since Genesis, people have been awaiting a re-entry into Eden, to regain what was once lost, dwelling with God in a renewed paradise. The idea of heaven has been so ingrained in our minds, however, that we imagine we're going to live a bodiless, matterless existence when we die. It's what I thought for a long time, it's actually very normal. But heaven is only an intermediary state. This is where, when we die, we await the resurrection of our bodies and the renewal of all things, right? After all, this is what Paul looks for in, Re- in Romans A when he talks about the creation groans, awaiting the revelation of God's sons and daughters, that is their resurrection from the grave, because at that time, it too will be freed from the curse. If we think back to Genesis 3, the ground too, the earth was also cursed. That's why there are thorns and thistles, natural disasters, plants die, that's why there's snow coming, right? Uh, we think. Uh, for a guy from Miami, this represents the curse uh, as it is. Okay, once it drops just below 50, it's over for me. Um, I won't even walk to the side of campus. My office is way across. I will drive here. Um. <laughs> but one day, when we're all raised glorious, the creation will also be renewed, no longer subject to the painful effects of sin. All creation, both human and non-human, will be renewed, made glorious, fit for God's people. That's us. But because heaven is so commonplace for us, we come to the Bible and expect a picture of disembodied spirits in the sky somewhere, which we don't really find. What we do see are a lot of physical promises to God's people throughout the scope of the Bible. Think of the land promised to Abraham, which now becomes the promise of the renewed earth. And again, Paul helps us understand this in Romans 4, when he says that Abraham and his sons will inherit the world. That is those who are saved by faith in Jesus. They are the heirs of the world. So God's not gonna get rid of this place. He's not gonna get rid of the creation as if the creation is evil. Physical matter, the stuff we touch, feel and experience isn't necessarily evil. God made it all, and he said it is good. Now, in the last book in the Bible, God is restoring what he made after it was corrupted by sin. He is making all things new, all right? That which is good will be good forever, completely renewed. He's restoring creation to its Edenic state. Now, notice here in the last part of verse one, he says, and the sea was no more. There'll be no sea in the new heavens and new earth. Okay, we can debate all day long where I think there's going to be water uh, in the new heavens and new earth. Um, I don't think that's what John is getting at here, Uh, but you can think about it if you want. Um, I think when we read Revelation, the sea is associated with the realm of sin and death and all its effects. So I think. What John is affirming here is that sin, death, and all its painful effects will not be found in the new heavens and earth. And if you look at verse 4, I think that's made clear. When John says, Death shall be no more, nor shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So in the new earth, there'll be no death or the possibility of a snake slithering into the garden to corrupt the very good place that God has prepared for his people there'll be no death and the mourning and crying and pain associated with it these things will have no place in the new creation all things will be made new and they'll stay that way forever but we're not there yet right but in the present death still stings we feel its painful effects every day And I want to get to some of those effects in just a moment. For now, I want us to focus on the full effects of the curse, which reside in death. And I'll get to some of the other effects in a moment. So before I came to Southeastern Seminary, uh, I was a professor, as Dr. Ashford said, at the University of Mobile for two and a half years, right? When I got that position, I was a newly minted uh, PhD grad. Um, Honestly, I don't feel that newly minted uh, anymore. But about six months into my time at the University of Mobile, uh, I was asked to consider a position at a church as an interim pastor, um, and I took the position. I I was grateful that I did. They were sweet people, to be honest. They were great, and they were so kind, and my wife and kids. At the time, we only had two. Uh, Now we have four, but they were so sweet. They were great. Looking back, I realized what a blessing these people were to us, and my duties consisted mainly of Preaching on Sundays, some visitations, Um, I'd preach, I'd get invited to lunch, and I'd eat potlucks usually, and just repeat the cycle preach, lunch, and every now and then potlucks. But during my time there, I was introduced to not just potlucks, right? Because I had eaten pizza at potlucks, but these were southern potlucks. Um, I've never eaten anything like it in my life, right? The food was. Amazing, and then when you were done, they brought you more and they kept bringing it to you until they thought you, you were gonna pass out at some point. Then uh, they give you some to take home with you as well. And the amazing thing about this stuff is the next day you'd reheat it and it was still just as good. And it happened over and over and over again. I finally asked my wife, it's like, what is in this stuff? Uh, and she said, it's a potluck, right? She's from the South, she's accustomed to this stuff. Um, but things were going well in this, um, at this church. One day, however, uh, I get a phone call. And I was asked by one of the deacons to go visit uh, a little boy who was sick in one of the hospitals in Mobile. So I, I agreed to. I went. Uh, I showed up. But honestly, I had no idea what I was about to get myself uh, into. My seminary education, my experience in other churches, had not prepared me for what I was about to see, which is the effect of the curse on full display. This boy had been given just days to live. He had a serious medical uh, condition. When I walked in, again, I was not prepared. What I saw there was a the boy who had, given, had been given, at the most, a few days to live. So I walk in, the boy is laying in the bed, and the mother's just crawled up in the fetal position, laying next to her boy. Um, what I saw there, just stayed with me. I mean, it's still with me to this day. Um, I did all I could. I, I prayed, uh, I said a few words, and I walked out, but I was a wreck. I was a mess uh, thereafter. I had to preach the next day, and it's, I barely made it uh, through my sermon. Um, it was hard, it was rough. Uh, I've never cried through a sermon. I mean, I cried at parts uh, through that sermon. But that day, when I was able to reassure that congregation, with it's the very thing I can, I can reassure us, today, that one day, there'll be no such suffering, there'll be no such death. One day, God's people will resurrect from the grave into a physically renewed paradise where there's no sin, no death whatsoever. There'll be no crying over sick children or people who pass too quickly. When speaking about the new creation, Isaiah in chapter 65 says, no longer should there be a child who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill his days. There will be no sickness or death ever again to cut our lives short. This is the place that our hearts should truly long for. After all, this is our true home. Jesus came 2000 years ago to die and rise from the grave to deliver us from exile from this sinful, cursed world, to bring us into a new one. By rising from the grave, he becomes the first fruits of a new creation, of the, of the resurrection we will one day experience. One day he will raise us to enjoy life the way it was supposed to be, free from suffering, free from pain. That day we will be made whole. Now verses 2 and 3 give us a fuller picture of what the new creation will be like. Notice here, John mentions a new Jerusalem, which will come down on this new creation. When we think of the Old Testament, we think of Jerusalem. This is the place where God dwell with his people in a temple. This place looks forward to this new Jerusalem, where God will dwell with his people forever, all right? And it's likened to a bride, because God will live there eternally with his people forever. And John affirms the eternal nature um, of the new Jerusalem where God will dwell with his people forever when he says, look, the dwelling of God is with men and he'll be with them and he'll be his people and he will be their God. All right? In the new Jerusalem, God will dwell with his people forever in this new creation. He will dwell in a place with his people just like he did with Adam and Eve, only better and forever. Now we think about Revelation, the New Jerusalem, all right? One theme that's constantly uh, uh, compared or contrasted to New Jerusalem is Babylon. If you think of the Old Testament background for Babylon, Babylon is the place where God's people were taken into exile. They were taken out of Jerusalem and into exile in Babylon. Just think of people like Daniel. So what John does is he takes this theme of Babylon and uses it to signify life in the present, that is, life in exile in this world. For John's readers, he would have likely associated with Rome, a place they were not to be too comfortable with, a city they were not to be too comfortable with, which was the epitome of curse and unfaithfulness to God. But John also speaks to us when he says that we live in Babylon, we are living in a cursed age. They, like us, are to envision that one day we will come out of Babylon and into a new Jerusalem, a place where we'll be restored to life with God. But again, John also speaks to us. And what is he saying? We live in Babylon. We live in exile. We are a people who are not to put our hope too strongly in our current Surroundings. We're not to think that this is home. We're not to be too comfortable where we live. We, in fact, are to be maladjusted to the present life, to the present way of doing things. When we compare the present to the new Jerusalem, we are to long for this better place because we are citizens of a new Jerusalem. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, Do we think of ourselves as exiles, as strangers, as outsiders in the present age? When we look throughout the scripture, God's people have considered themselves strangers in places like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Rome, working for the welfare of the places in which they reside. They care about it. They work for them. But understanding the city for which they long for is a far better one than the one in which they currently live. Is this not what the author of Hebrews says when he speaks about many of the Old Testament saints? Just listen to Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear, they are seeking a homeland. And let's be clear, it's not this one. They knew they were outsiders. They knew their status was a marginal one on the earth. They were okay with it because they had their eyes set on a better place. Question, are we okay with it? Or are we too closely tied to this age, putting our stock, our hope, and preserving whatever we have in the present? Think of Moses again. And the author of Hebrews, he records that Moses was willing to suffer reproach in Egypt for he was looking forward to his future reward. Do we have this same mentality? Or do we expect that we're going to keep stuff, acquire stuff? Do we expect power and glory in the present? What could help us then to begin thinking about the fact that we are living life in babylon though we are living in exiles strangers right here in the places in which we reside what could help us move from a theology of dominion and power to one that accepts our outsider status in this world you know when i travel and teach in different places like cuba or mexico countries that historically have not been friendly uh, to evangelicals there is a greater sense that the people are Exiles. There certainly are those who think differently, but the general sense is that they are strangers looking forward to a better place. In fact, it's opposite. It's strange for them to think that what they're seeking, the dominion, the power they're seeking is here. They would see that as strange because they feel maladjusted. And what they are looking for is a place far better than this one. They work for the welfare of their cities, as Jeremiah says, all the while knowing that they are citizens of a far better place. And honestly, the more I'm around them, the more I talk to people in these countries, the more I understand what it means that I am, that we are exiles outside of Eden with people from Cuba, Mexico, and all kinds of other places throughout the world who are awaiting a place where we all will be made new. So could it be then that we could learn something from people whose circumstances have reinforced an identity of stranger, of outsider? Could it be that Christians in this places could better understand and help us see ourselves as John would see us, as living in Babylon, as outsiders and strangers who are looking forward to a much better place? A people who help us understand fellow Christians, that our hope should reside in a far better place than the present. And to be honest, you don't have to leave the country to do so. In most major cities and rural areas, there are people who have come from other places who live here and understand what it is to live in existence as an outsider. These are Christians living among us from different places, different countries. Could it be that they could teach us about faithfulness in a strange land. This is not something outside the box, right? We all read commentaries, we have conversations with friends, we go to conferences, all for the sake of better, being better readers and practitioners of Scripture. Surely we can open our minds and hearts to listening to those who we'd normally, perhaps, would not listen to. At its core, this is just wisdom and humility. When we see ourselves as exiles in Babylon, we understand that this world was never intended to satisfy us, that our goal should never be to gain this world or to preserve any kind of status or power in the present. After all, Jesus did say, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We were all made for a better place, a place that John describes in verse four, with no tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. But for now, we do live in a world characterized by these things. Why would we ever want to put our hope in the present? Why do we ever try to gain this whole world? Is the result not losing our souls? One of the characteristics of a cursed world is tears. right, where else do you find an author explaining life in a cursed world? Think of Ecclesiastes, for example, and how Solomon talks about tears, those who experience suffering in a cursed world, life under the sun, all right? Which is very similar to what John is now talking about, a cursed world in Revelation 21. Listen to what the preacher, Solomon, says in chapter four. Again, I saw all the oppression is done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them on the side of their oppressors was power and there was no one to comfort them what does the preacher readily admit what's obvious to him there are oppressed and there are oppressors and the oppressed are normally in a position where they can't do anything about it because their oppressors have power thus all they can do is cry That is the way of a cursed age. There's injustice, there's racism, abuse against women, children, there's sex trafficking. And it's so hard to break free, there's so hard to get justice because oppressors have power. All the vulnerable can do is what John describes, shed tears. For now. But God sees the oppressed, he hears, he sees their tears, he hears their lament. As he heard the cries of his people in Egypt, he hears our cries today. One day, God will wipe away the tears of his followers, bringing them into a new heavens and a new earth. He will judge their oppressors. It's the very reversal of fortunes the prophets anticipate in the Old Testament when finally God brings justice to all oppressors, those who cause tears. At that time, the exile will come to an end, and the meek shall inherit earth it's us all followers of jesus so as we wait for this new heavens and this new earth it's important for us to examine ourselves how are we caring for the oppressed those who cry for deliverance what is our response when the hurting come to us the broken come to us is it one of concern would not god be sympathetic to the broken In a time of frequent cycles of oppression and deliverance in among God's people. Look at what Judges 2.18 says. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. If the Lord was moved to pity and then action through his deliverance, should not we do the same? Are not all believers strangers on the earth? Why will we not run to the aid of fellow sojourners in Christ with whom we'll spend eternity? Elise Fitzpatrick wrote a book uh, called Home. It's about the new heavens and new earth, a great book. Uh, In it, she describes how over time, she reflected on her heartache, she reflected on her tears. And God brought her to the point where she realized that the place she longs for, the place she truly was made for, was the new heavens and a new earth, a real flesh and blood home. As Christians, we too should long for this place No matter how sorrowful, no matter how difficult things may seem, we have the hope of living in a new creation with our Creator. We should not be comfortable in life in exile. Daniel was it. He knew he was a stranger. So what he was striving for is a better place. That vision he saw of the Son of Man coming down from the heavens and establishing a kingdom on the earth. This is a place with no oppression, racism, untimely death, murders, divisions, and immorality. We should never be satisfied with the way things are. We are exiles and strangers on the present earth. We are citizens of a new Jerusalem. Our hearts should long for this place. Now, following this future vision, John now begins to wind things down. So this is what's to come. What about the now? What about the present? Look what John says in verse 5. He says, the one sitting on the throne, that's Jesus, Davidic king, he is making all things new. In other words, Jesus is in the process of renovating all things, but the process has not been fulfilled. We await the place that John sees in verses 1 through 4, but as we see in verse 6, God's word is as good as done. His word is trustworthy. It is true. We will dwell in this place. God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is sovereign over all history, will make sure that the thirsty, those who desire eternal life in this place, will receive it. Notice, however, what comes next. John says, those who overcome will receive this inheritance, which he says in verse 7. What John means by this is those who overcome life in Babylon, overcome life in this cursed world. They don't give in to its pressures, its expectations. Those who don't become like Babylon. And John gives us a list of those who are overcome, those who look like Babylon, those in the church who, though they claim the Lordship of Christ, Their life gives evidence to these things. And I'll note the two that John brackets his list with, the cowardly and liars. And throughout Revelation, when you think of the first one, the cowardly, John describes and displays concern for those who fear losing security, status, well-being, and possibly life in this age. So they accommodate, they compromise for fear of losing the power They're going to lose one day anyway. Blunt argues that such people who John calls cowards are the ultimate accommodationists, surrendering their witness to God's lordship and testify the lordship of Caesar and Rome instead. Now, to put things in context, Scripture does call to submit to Caesar as Christians. Those in authority, it's good and right, and so long as their wishes are in keeping with the lordship of Jesus. After all, Peter says we submit for the Lord's sake. But there is always a temptation lurking to submit to and accommodate for the fear of losing status and power and just our way of life. Question is, how are we doing at this? Are we being careful to display to a cursed world that our true devotion, our ultimate devotion, is to the Lord Jesus? Are we being careful to obey Caesar and rightly so as we should? in matters that are pleasing to Jesus Christ. These are important questions we ask ourselves for the temptation is always to accommodate or sometimes to accommodate for the sake of preserving something, influence, power, esteem in the present age. But again, was it not Jesus who said that the one who tries to save his life will lose it? and The one who loses it For his sake, we'll gain it. What is actually the way to acquire status and power in the kingdom? To give it away. Because you can't keep what you're going to lose here anyway. So the argument is, we must be willing to give away the status, the power, the livelihood, if Jesus so calls us to do it, so that all will see our clear devotion to our true Lord, Jesus Christ. So again, is it wise to preserve power in Babylon? Isn't this the way of a cursed age? Should we not be willing to let go of power and suffer all for the sake of Jesus, knowing that one day we will receive what we're really looking for, the glory we really seek to attain at the resurrection? So we work for the present, striving to make the places in which we live better, more just, more in line with the wishes of Jesus, ultimately looking for or heart, our hearts truly long for, which is a new heavens and a new earth. And the vice list goes on. The last one he mentions are liars, and as Craig Keener uh, argues, these are those whose faith and actions don't really support what they claim, which is a lordship to Jesus Christ. Now, what these bookends and all these vices there in between have in common is that they refer to those in a church, people who are in danger of Compromising, that are in danger of being overcome by Babylon. And if they continue to show so, to show this, they'll show they're fit, not for a new creation, but what John describes here in verse 8, which is a lake of fire. I think it stands as a good warning for all of us who follow Jesus. We are exiles in this world. Our hope is not in this place, it's in the one that is to come. John makes clear, clear we are not to accommodate for, for the sake of preserving anything that we are going to lose anyway. John would call that cowardly. Now, I want to make clear, John is not talking about disassociating with the people of this earth, not doing, not doing things like going swimming or watching movies. Right? How else will we watch Star Wars, right? Um, or uh, the upcoming movie, Top Gun in May, which I am ready for. Um, What John is talking about is that Jesus expects that our loyalty will not be to Babylon. I won't be confused with it in any way whatsoever. That we're going to be salt and light in a dark place, bearing witness to God, our Lord, our King, with whom we'll one day dwell within a new Jerusalem forever. What he's talking about is those who become indistinguishable from it. This becomes their consistent habit of life. And thus, what they're showing is they're not fit for a new creation. The good thing is, verses 4 through 8 are not in the future yet. They're in the present. So there's still time to repent. There's still time to trust in Jesus. For the one whose faith is centered in Jesus is the one who overcomes life in exile, life in Babylon, showing they will inherit the new creation We want to be those people regardless of the daily pressures we face because we all struggle with it to hold on to what we cannot keep. So we've seen this text is the fulfillment of the hope of all the scriptures, a place where God dwells with his people forever. Ever since the the exile from the garden, humanity has been looking forward to one who will reopen the way to Eden. When we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus is that person. He's the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent, said. He's Abraham's descendant. He's David's son. All who trust in him, from all backgrounds, ethnicities, and languages, and places, become the recipients of the promises to God's people. We, the followers of Jesus, who are exiles now, will one day be delivered into a new Jerusalem upon our resurrection this will be life in eden this will be eternal life this is our true home when we will finally be at rest when we'll finally be made whole this is the place for which we should truly long when god makes all things new let's pray Lord, you're good to us, you're kind to us. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world to redeem sinners like us and deliver us into a new heavens and new earth. Lord, give us the courage, give us the faithfulness to testify to Jesus and his lordship on this earth as we await the resurrection, the renewal of all things. And it's in Jesus, your son's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit sebts.edu.